And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Our Father, we are reminded of your special affection on little children. You can liken the kingdom of heaven to them. And yet they are so abused in our day. We admit that you told us that we're not greater than our master, that if they persecuted him, they would persecute us. You said through your apostle that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We know our world hates us more and more because we affirm marriage between a man and a woman as your word teaches. We affirm there are just two genders as you have spelt out. And they hate us because we are against those who would mutilate little babies in the womb. Father, I'm so thankful that our state passed a law that would protect these children, but it will be challenged this week by the Supreme Court of, of South Carolina. Father, I don't know these five men. We know we can't write them or email them, but we can pray for them. And I pray that there would just be a fear in their hearts. Whatever it would take, that you would guard these children in our state. We know life begins before six weeks, but at conception, but we are thankful for the progress that this would make in saving innocent little children. Father, we think of children in America who are being abused, who are being taught evil. We are reminded this week of the opportunity you've entrusted to us as a church family. And we know unless you build a house, we labor in vain. We are expectant for the hundreds of children that you will bring on our campus, many of whom are unchurched. And we pray the Spirit of God would speak to them and to their parents and that you would help our own children to grow deeper and further in their love for Jesus Christ. Now, as we open your scripture, open our hearts to its truth, may we lay aside preconceived notions and biases that are not consistent with your word. Please come and fill me and anoint me and use me for the glory of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you're new to the Bible, all the tea books in the Bible are found in the New Testament. They're easy to find. They go from long to short. And so the word Thessalonians is longer than the word Timothy, which is longer than the word Titus. So you have First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, right after Go Everywhere Preaching Christ, or Gary Eats Popcorn, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So if you can find one of those books, you can find potentially nine books here in the New Testament. Now, we just finished a series called God's Prophetic Schedule. But before we begin our next verse-by-verse exposition of a book of the Bible, I have been asked, and by many of you, some have written, some have emailed, uh, like never before, 
on this subject of the role of men and women in the church, and we saw it hit the fan in the largest evangelical Protestant denomination in the last week or so. And it's been nearly eight years since I've addressed this subject in depth, so I hope to in this three-week series. Now, if you were not here last week, you might want to go back. If you're new and listening, there's a Search the Scriptures app. You can listen to it on your phone at your leisure. But we're taking three weeks, so please be patient with me. And if you miss, again, those foundational premises, go back and listen. In either case, for our own review and for many of you that maybe are brand new to the Bible, I want to begin reading in verse 9, though we're going to largely focus on just verse 11 today. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man but to remain quiet, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-respect." Now, I have meditated on this portion of Scripture. Someone asked me, how long did it take me to prepare the uh, text this morning? And on average, it takes me about 30 hours to prepare a message. But I suppose in some ways, I've been working on messages like this for 30 years, and that I have been studying and meditating on this truth. And, and this has now become really a watershed issue in evangelicalism. The church for nearly 21 centuries had one view concerning the role of men and the role of women in the church. And I'm amazed, though I suppose I shouldn't be because the Bible speaks of this apostasy at the end of time, but how many Christian organizations, how many schools, seminaries, and local churches who for decades taught one thing have now seen new truth that they never saw before. And as a general principle, I've told you, if it's new, it's not true. And so there have been numerous approaches that have been taken to argue away what seems very, very obvious. Now, for four or five decades, the church has been successful in dealing with the feminist movement, and there have certainly been aspects of the feminist movement that were good. But most of what has come down the pike is largely evil and largely contrary to Scripture. And so in the last week, um, we saw how Saddleback Community Church, led by Rick Warren, was officially and rightly so thrown out of the Southern Baptist Convention. They needed to be. But they will continue along with some other 2,000 estimated SBC churches also need to be exercised from this group, not to mention churches like Willow Creek, Lake Point Church that I was once an elder of, and I wrote a position paper which the entire congregation adopted based on this text of Scripture that has now been rejected and dismissed. Elevation Church, Passion City, hosts of churches that we could name this morning. And of course, many of these churches would not deny outright the authority of Scripture, they would just simply say they are now interpreting it in a different way. 
But you know, the wonderful reality of Scripture is that God contained within the Scripture, unless you believe that just understanding simple language is impossible. If I say I'm going to meet you this afternoon at 3 o'clock here at the church for a meeting, I mean what I say, I meant what I said. Language was given to be communicated. And God contained within the Scripture itself how to interpret the Scripture. So he created a hermeneutic. Hermeneutics is the study of interpretation on how we approach and study Scripture. And sadly, given enough time, these denominations in parachurch organizations that have basically jettisoned historical Christian truth have gone liberal or in the process of going liberal. They are apostatizing. We speak of those who are woke. Woke is just a 50-cent word for apostasy. Those who have departed from the faith. And it's a slippery slope. And as we'll see next time, the devil is using this issue in our day to do exactly what he did back in the Garden of Eden, to reject God's truth as authoritative, opening a door of evil. Now remember, Timothy was a pastor. He pastored a church in a city known as Ephesus, and it was once a very strong church and a very doctrinally pure church. But now they had slid into doctrinal and theological error because of some contentious people in the church. He has already said in his first letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar in support of the truth. And so among some of the doctrinal error that they were facing concerned the role of women in the church. There was role reversal. And so some women were usurping the role that God had given to men. And so in verses 9 through 16, he corrects this matter. And again, we're just looking at one verse today. And if you draw some conclusions without coming back to next week, you'll do yourself an injustice. So be patient with me. And please listen to the whole uh, section of Scripture. Now, in this paragraph, beginning in verses 8 all the way through 15, he deals basically with uh, four elements of submission. In the first issue we addressed last time, and I'll show you how it's relevant today to what we're speaking to, and it concerns a woman's adornment, a woman's adornment. And some of the women, by the way they dressed, were denying the truth that they had professed, that they had come to worship the living God. And so women, Paul underscores, are to be adorned in modest apparel. Notice, if you will, in verse 9, he begins, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves. Now, if you haven't noticed, men and women are quite different. The way a woman traditionally, historically adorns herself is very differently from a man because that's the way God made them. And we appreciate it as men. And so he says that a woman is to adorn herself. And let me just say, even these drag queens who are coming into public libraries, into public schools, and yes, even into church pulpits, even these perverts, and that's what they are. They are perverts, perverts with a reprobate mind. They have disowned the truth of God. They have suppressed it. And God has given them over to a depraved mind where they call evil good and good evil. But even these perverts recognize as a drag queen that women adorn themselves. 
And we saw that the word adorn is the Greek word cosmeto. We get our word cosmetics from it. And a woman, when she adorns herself, is basically fulfilling the way God made her to present herself at her best. But God is not interested, as Paul will underscore and emphasize, simply in external adornment, but the adornment of the inside of conduct and character. And so he says in verse 9, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not, circle that word if you haven't yet, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but, if you haven't circled that word, circle the word but, but rather by means of good works, this is proper for women making a claim to godliness. And so the beauty of a character that's godly is fitting. So God is not dismissing physical beauty, but he is underscoring that it is not to be done to the exclusion of internal beauty. And by the way, linguistically speaking, as we noted last time, this is one of the great not buts in Scripture. It's a comparative where God says, not this, but not to the exclusion of this. He's making a comparison. Jesus called us slaves, and we're still slaves. He that would be great among you must be the doulos, the slave of all. But he said, no longer do I call you slaves in the same breath, but I call you my friends. He's not saying that we're no longer slaves. He's simply saying we're more than slaves. We're friends of God. And so depending on the context, sometimes the not buts mean not only this one thing, but also mainly another. And that's, of course, what is in view here. He is not discounting that a woman can wear jewelry in church or braid her hair or any, in any other place. Yet there are whole denominations that have built a theology because of a sloppy handling of Scripture. Um, so you shouldn't look frumpy or old or outdated. You want to be culturally relevant. But at the same time, neither do you want to follow the world's patterns. You need to dress modestly. And I know, of course, in our day, that's a very challenging thing to do as you shop. Secondly, women are to adorn themselves in discreet apparel. So in addition to adorning themselves modestly, women are to adorn themselves discreetly. He says, with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. And the word discreetly is the word sophron. We get our word sobriety from it. In fact, uh, one English translation translates it sobriety or with good sense or another translation says with propriety. It is a word that's used elsewhere of well-balanced sound thinking. And so she's to dress modestly but discreetly. It's possible for a woman to dress modestly but not discreetly. And again, these women in Paul's day, and if you know anything about Ephesus and even some of the historical writings that have come down outside of Scripture, we know it was a very wealthy city, and Revelation underscores that in the letter that Jesus writes to them. And so some women would come to church with these incredibly elaborate hairdos, and it's like, whoa. And if a woman comes to church in a way that she's trying to call attention to herself, then she's not fulfilling the admonition to be discreet. This is not a fashion show, Paul is saying. You say you're coming here to worship the living God, let's do so. So women are to adorn themselves modestly, discreetly. Third, women are to adorn themselves in godly character. 
and godly character. So negatively in verse 9, he's asking the women to reject the immodesty and the extravagance of the world, but he's not content to leave it there. Positively, he wants them to adorn themselves in godly character, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. So he's not suggesting that good works are a substitute for clothing any more than Peter when he addresses this issue. He's not saying a woman shouldn't wear a dress and she comes to church naked. Again, the scripture is so clear if you just read it contextually. But he is underscoring that the best of all adornment is on the inside. And so he's making a comparison here. And he underscores here godliness and good deeds. And by the way, this is all by way of review, but it's an important review because as we'll see this morning, these verses are offered in a context. And if you miss what we've just looked at in this last paragraph, you'll see how some come to spurious and false conclusions in the paragraph that will follow. Now, if you were not here last time, you might want to go back and again listen, but let me just briefly summarize three preliminary presuppositions that I gave you that are important. Number one, that the book that we are reading this morning is the infallible, inerrant, authoritative Word of God. I'm not here to debate that this morning. If you're not convinced of that, on the one hand, you are because it's alive and sharper than a two-edged sword. So even if you never read a book on apologetics, you already know it's true and God will hold you accountable for that. But there are internal proofs within the scripture that show that this book is like no other book ever written. But I start with the fact that we are dealing with Holy Scripture. And if your opinion doesn't sync with Holy Scripture, then you should kick it out. If it matches with what you see in the mirror of the Bible, then you should hold on to it with both hands. The second preliminary, and so I say all that to say that if you have a problem with what I'm going to say this morning, your problem is not really with me. It is with God who inspired this book. Secondly, I also gave you a second preliminary presupposition, and that is, is that when you study a text of Scripture, you need to study it in the context in which it's written, sometimes within a chapter, sometimes within a book, or sometimes the whole of the Bible. The liberal, they accuse us of this, but it's the liberal apostate unbeliever who proof texts the scripture to say, this is what Paul said, this is what we teach. And of course, they're gravely wrong. And so it's important that when we look at a text of scripture, we look at it in the context of the whole of scripture. Third, Uh, I also stated that it's important that we consider that which is eternally binding and that which has a cultural application only. You see, as we'll see next time, again, next week's very important because if you haven't heard it yet, you will. There are people who will say, well, 1 Timothy 2 is time-bound. It's like foot washing. You shouldn't wash feet today. That was just an issue in the first century because people walked around with sandals in dirty streets. And they would say that this is a time-bound issue. And so it's important that we discern between that which is eternally binding and that which has a cultural application only. Now, I left you hanging last time because we looked at the role of men in prayer and we looked at the way that women should dress in public and in the church, and there should be a consistency there. 
I hope you don't dress one way when you come to church and dress ladies a very different way when you're out in the community. That, of course, is sheer hypocrisy. And sadly, many women in our day live that, and then they wonder why their teenage daughters want to dress seductively. They're just living out what you model. But with that said, it's important that as we discuss the role men play, leadership role in prayer, it's not that women can't pray in the church, they're commanded to pray in the church, but the leadership is to be done by men. And we also looked at how women are to dress, and I said, well, what does this have to do with women preachers? Everything. It has absolutely everything to do with women preachers. Why? Because we have so-called evangelicals today who say that verses 11 to 15 is time-bound, or they say it doesn't apply to the parachurch, but to the local church. And let me define that. There is a movement in the last 150 years called the parachurch. The word para is the Greek word to come alongside. And so there are organizations that come alongside the local church in service to the church. And so they would say, well, what we do as a parachurch organization is very different from what uh, a local church might do. So I was involved and worked for 12 and a half years with an organization called Campus Crusade Crew, and for decades they had one way of understanding and applying these passages of Scripture, but now they've become, I guess, newly informed. And so when they have four or 5,000 staff that meet, they will have women teachers in a mixed audience opening the Scriptures and preaching just like a man. And they'll say, well, Paul's application is for the local church. It doesn't apply to us. What about the way you dress? Does dressing modestly and discreetly only apply to the local church and not to the parachurch? Of course not. That's absolutely ridiculous. Now, it is true that there are parachurch organizations that have been a great aid to the local assembly. Now, after COVID, we've gone from approximately 100. They say now the average church in America is 65 people. And so some very small churches might not be able to produce, say, what we're going to use this next week in our vacation Bible school. And so there have been great blessings that have come through the parachurch ministry. But understand, the pillar and foundation of the church that Paul writes is the local assembly. And if you spend all your time in these outside organizations trying to serve the Lord to the exclusion of serving in the local assembly, you have missed it. And you will have great regrets at the judgment seat of Christ. God's plan is for the local assembly. And so God doesn't have like one standard out here for the parachurch. And so what the parachurch is doing in a very overt way today is they have manipulated how women should serve when they are gathered together with men, and that has now dribbled into the local assembly. And so, again, this is important. That's why the Scripture says in James chapter 3, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. Why? Knowing that we will incur a stricter judgment. And this is why, one, on the front of this pulpit, we have sola scriptura. Scripture alone is authoritative. It's Latin as the five expressions on the window behind us from the Protestant Reformation. Scripture alone is authoritative. 
but Scripture must be read in its context. You can make the Bible mean whatever you want. I was in Greenville last week, and it just seems like on every corner the Jehovah's Witness were there. I probably spoke to 10 Jehovah Witness couples in the course of the few days we were there. And it was a lot of fun for me, you know, <laughs> I mean, to be able to share Christ. And some of them were open. Some of them were very hardened. But one of the classic things they do is they take Scripture out of context. I said, the verse you just quoted, you quoted out of context. I said, the Scripture says there is no God. But contextually, it says the fool is set in his heart, there's no God. You know, the man who was trying to find God's will for his life, he knew it was in the Bible, so he was just kind of fanning through, and he had his eyes closed, and he punched down on one verse, and it said, Judas went away and hung himself. Oh, my. So he said, let me see what else I can find. He fanned through some more, and he came now to Luke's gospel, and it said, go therefore and do likewise. <laughs> now, listen, the Scripture must be read in its context, or we will misunderstand what the scripture says and how to apply it. And so in verse eight, I want the men where? In every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension. So if say verse eight is, is exclusively referring to the church gathered on the Lord's day, then why does he say in every place? Understand that in the early centuries, they didn't meet in buildings like we have, they met in homes until they later developed church buildings. This is not the church, this is a building. This is the meeting place of the people of Community Bible Church. And so he is underscoring here a woman's adornment. Secondly, and we wanna break some new ground here, and we're gonna focus largely on verse 11, though we'll briefly look at verse 12, but next time in depth on a woman's submission. So he moves from those who indecently dress in the worship service to those who are improperly leading when the church is gathered. Now remember how he began verse 8. Likewise, I want women. And as I noted last time, this verb, I want, bulamai, is a very strong verb. It's a verb of command. In other words, he's not saying, well, this is kind of what I would like. This is what I wish. In fact, the King James renders it, uh, I will. Uh, as does the ESV. The JB translation says, I direct. In other words, Paul is not speaking of the want of a wish. This is the want of a command. And Paul is not saying that, well, this is just a nice thing, maybe a suggestion. He's commanding, bulamai, he's commanding the church to do this. And he's speaking with a sense of apostolic authority. There are no apostles today, and unlike the new apostolic reformation that is sweeping Western Europe and has now entered into the United States of America, arguing that there are apostles today, they are wrong, they are liars, they are cheats, they are scam artists, and you should avoid them like the plague. There are no apostles, and their organization is riddled with false doctrine. Why? Because they say, I'm an apostle, therefore I am speaking on behalf of God. Scripture is clear to be an apostle, you had to have been personally selected by Jesus, you had to have seen the risen Christ, and if those two things were true, then you would do the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle could do. So Paul is writing with a sense of apostolic awareness, that he is speaking as God's man on behalf of the living Lord. And so he plainly commands in verse 12, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. 
So this is not something that Paul simply wishes or hopes. This is something that he's commanding the local church to practice. And so when I see a woman who wants to step out of God's design and wants to be a pastor or wants to teach in a mixed audience, someone wrote me from Maine a couple days ago and they said, I'm listening to your series that you're doing currently and and we have a group of 18 to 20 year olds that's combined men and women and it's taught by women. Are we in violation of scripture? And the plain simple answer is absolutely yes. We will see next time that God gives a special role for women to teach women that is not lightly dismissed and not like a secondhand role and for women to teach little men and little women. And again, in a culture that discards children is important. Yesterday was the one-year anniversary of Roe v. Wade, but now it goes back to the states, and it goes back to our state this week. And on the 27th, I hope you will be praying earnestly that life will be protected in this state. And there's a direct correlation from these states that are sanctioning the murder of innocent little babies in the womb with plagues and trouble and turmoil that's coming on those states. It's not only true of nations, it's true of localities. And that's one of the reasons South Carolina is a great place to live and some other states are absolutely miserable to live. We think that God is ruling from afar. God is ruling up close and personal. And he is watching what these five Supreme Court justices in our state will do this week. And so a woman who is discarding the role that God has given her, she's either A, living in ignorance, but in more cases than not, she's just living in absolute, total rebellion. Now, I understand because today we're going to carefully examine verse 12 and just, uh, verse 11 and just glance at verse 12. The meaning of verse 12 needs to be understood in the verses that follow. So come back. So having commanded them to adorn themselves with proper clothing, now in verses 11 and 12, he deals with a woman's submission, which is really the heart of the passage. Verse 11 says, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Again, let me explain that people write this off. They say that it is a culturally mandated thing, but it's not. And I hope you will see that. But add to that, there are pastors today who are afraid to speak this. There are churches all across America where they would never preach this text. And we've already had four people get up and leave during this service, and I know why. They would never open this text. Why? Because they don't want to be offensive. And what they are doing is they are feminizing the church. And I hope to document it for you next time that when the church is feminized, when men abdicate their role as men, you raise up girly boys and you set the stage for homosexuality and lesbianism and the transgenderism that we see having, having unfolding in our day. And so typically, you talk to a lost person, and they'll just simply say, well, Paul was homophobic, Paul was misogynist, he hated women, and that's why he wrote what he wrote. And then you have evangelicals who try to skirt around that, they don't want to say that about the apostle, they'll say, well, this just has no application for today. 
Well, submission has great application, not just for women, but for men. But our text deals with three aspects, three truths concerning the doctrine of submission as it relates to women. There in your outline, a woman who is submissive is A, not inferior. The scripture is clear that she is not inferior. Again, we read here in verse 11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Now, I hope you understand that submission does not imply inferiority or inequality. Everybody knows that a woman is inferior, superior, is, is, <laughs> excuse me, is infinitely superior to a man in being a woman. And a man is infinitely superior to a woman in being a man. But there are people today in the church who want to obliterate our roles as, uh, as men and women under the banner of equality. And one of the verses that they use is Galatians 3.28, which says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And there's certainly been a lot of ink spilt on this verse to one endorse homosexuality, one to endorse women pastors, and now more recently to underscore the false teaching of transgenderism. But contextually, if you read the verses before it, it's crystal clear. Paul is saying that men and women alike are co-heirs of the Lord, and men and women alike come to Christ on the same basis, by faith. When a Jew becomes a believer, he doesn't cease being a Jew. When a Gentile becomes a believer, he doesn't cease being a Gentile. A male is still a male. A female is still a female. He is simply underscoring that God, as Acts 10 teaches, that God is not a respecter of persons. It's not God is saying, well, it's this ethnicity or that ethnicity or this race or that race. Really, there's, there's only one race. It's the human race. But there are a multiplicity of ethnicities that can be seen in the amount of melatonin in your skin, or if you live within a certain locale long enough and marry within that locale, you'll develop certain facial structures and features that might be unique to that region of the world. But there's only one race, and it's the human race, and God is underscoring that every race, every background, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, we are all one in Christ Jesus. Can you say amen to that? So while we are equal in our spiritual status before the Lord, that does not mean we have identical roles. And so the sexes are equal before God, but they are not identical in their function. The scripture is clear that equality of worth does not mean identity of function. We read in the opening chapter of the Bible, and God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Both are created in the image and likeness of God, but they're not created identically. So Genesis teaches that the marriage relationship that God made between a man and a woman, that they are to complement one another. And yet, under this whole guise of equality, we are denying that in our day. And somehow man's fallen rebellious nature thinks that he is smarter and wiser than God. But listen, here's a good verse that affirms both the equality and the complementarianism of two individuals. Write down out in the margin next to verse 11, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3. 
because this is a great verse that teaches that submission does not mean inferiority or inequality. Let me read you the verse, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, just take the last part of the verse for right now. And God is the head of Christ. Now, if you have any sound biblical theology, if you've read even a little bit of the New Testament, then you already know that the scripture teaches the triunity of God and that each member of the Godhead is equal. Uh, We have a slide on the doctrine of the Trinity. This goes back to the third century. Uh, God is the Father, God is the Son, and God is the Holy Spirit working from the middle out. But from the outside, the Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. So unlike oneness Pentecostals spearheaded by guys like T.D. Jakes, who's a false teacher, he's a false prophet, he's living for one thing, just like Joel Olstein, greed. And so he says the Father becomes the Son. At other times, the Son becomes the Father. The Father becomes the Spirit, and he denies... What the scripture clearly teaches, that God, that we don't worship three gods, we worship one God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. Now here in this verse, he is underscoring the equality of two members of the Godhead. And I have a whole course on pneumatology, if you're interested, pneumatos, spirit, pneumatology is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit that affirms the deity and the personality and equality of God the Holy Spirit. But the Bible clearly teaches that the Father and the Son are co-equal, that they're equal in essence, in worth, in power, in glory, in majesty. And yet here we find one member of the Godhead submitting to the other member. Remember on that occasion when Philip made a request to the Lord Jesus in the upper room? He said, we want to see the Father. And Jesus responded to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? The Lord Jesus and the Father are one. And yet this passage in 1 Corinthians 11 teaches that God the Father is the head of God the Son. Does that mean that God the Son is inferior? Clearly not. The headship of one does not imply the inferiority of the other. Don't miss that. The headship of one does not imply the inferiority of the other. And so when God calls the man to be the head of his home, he is not saying the woman is inferior any more than children who are called to submit to their parents are considered somehow as inferior human beings. But because we've thrown that out, Talk to the average educator today. They spend so much time in the government school system dealing with discipline. Why? Because we live in a culture where male headship is gone, and in the smallest microcosm of life, it's where you learn to respect the police officer, the government authority, the teacher in school. Why? Because you learn that in the home where the father leads as a, not as a dictator, but as a loving servant, loving his wife as Christ loved the church, and the wife submits to that authority. You have two heads, you have a monster. You have no head, it's dead. Someone has to lead. And so the biblical teaching is to hold together 
the equality and the complementariness of the sex, sexes. God made us male and female. There's no such thing as transgenderism. And there is a group of people in this nation who are going after your children. And they are your children, contrary to what our president said. They're not our children, they're your children. And unless you guard their hearts and you teach them scripture, the messages that are coming through in cartoons and video games and even from pulpits is contrary. Listen, you know, I just dealt with someone who was fired. Why? Because they didn't use the preferred pronouns. This is an evil day. We live in an upside down minded culture. And so we need to guard our children. We need to teach them what God says. And so the devil will try to make men and women alike under the guise of trying to make them equal. Listen, we are equal, but God is not in favor of he, he, he women and she men. He's, he is underscored that there's a difference in the sexes. So Christ is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, submitting to the Father's rule, and the Spirit is proceeding from both the Father and the Son. That's how God made it work in the Trinity. Why should we think that somehow what God does, we shouldn't do? And so in the body of Christ, while we are equal, women are not to be pastors or elders. And here in 1 Timothy 2.11, Paul is saying that when the church is gathered that the men are to teach in a mixed audience. And again, this applies in other realms, whether it's an ABF, whether it's a conference, whether it's some cruise somewhere, women are not to teach over men in a mixed audience. The women are not to be Bible teachers, but to quietly receive instruction and a spirit of submissiveness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. God said what he meant. He meant what he said. If he wanted to say something different, he would have. But he didn't. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are equal, yet they have various roles. But Rick Warren, people are listening to him. Thank God he was thrown out of the Southern Baptist Convention. He needed to be. People are listening to the Lou Giglios and the Stephen Furtick's, and the Joe Olsteins, and the Joyce Myers, who are all in violation of the clear teaching of Scripture. So just ask yourself, do you think that what the church is now progressively teaching has helped our society? I mean, are we really lighting the world such that we're dispelling evil? Are we really salting the world where we are preserving righteousness? Look around and see the fruit of four or five decades of feminism that has now walked right in the front door of the church. We have more sexual abuse. We have more divorce. We have more homosexuality. We have more gender denial, gender confusion, role reversal. Because the world is denying a basic truth that God has made us different. So there's more moral promiscuity. There's more social awkwardness. Why? Because we have taken God's unchanging standards and we've ignored them. We've listened to the evil one who is energizing the sons of disobedience. We're not to hide our light and put it under a basket. We're to put it up high so all who are in the home can benefit from it. And if we think we're going to win the world by becoming like the world, look, almost every single person who's ever visited this church from Rick Warren's church was lost.
Lost. He baptized them. And that's not to say I've never baptized an unbeliever. I knew I had. Not knowingly. But these people didn't even know what the gospel was. Oh, but we want to win people. Listen, you don't win people by becoming like the world. It's our distinctiveness from the world that gives us the platform and the testimony that God wants us to have. And so first, understand that when a woman in the church submits to the leadership of male pastors, she is not saying, I'm inferior. Secondly, a woman who submits, a woman who is submissive learns. Not only a woman who is submissive is not inferior, but a woman who is submissive learns. Look again at verse 11. A woman must quietly receive instruction. The ESV and the King James render it, a woman must quietly learn. Learn quietly with all submissiveness. And that's not bad because interestingly, the verb translated here in the NAS, receive instruction or learn in other translations, is the word mafaneo, and you, most of you know the word mathetes, which is the word for a disciple. And a disciple, very simply defined, is a learner. And so he's giving this exhortation that a woman is first not to be a teacher in the local assembly, but a woman is to be a learner. And if she's not willing to learn under a man, she's not going to grow. But he's also underscoring the important role that a woman plays. And again, we'll look at this in more depth next time. Because you see, how can a woman properly teach other women sound truth if she's not learning the truth under a pastor? How can a woman properly teach little men and little women? But you see, that's, that's not important anymore. Go out, get a career, let someone else raise the kids. It's insignificant. You know, you're a real person of significance if you have some title or after your name. And look at the fruit of what has happened in the American culture. We're falling apart. We're coming unglued everywhere. And so he is underscoring that what women are to do is they are first to learn. You see, that is so radical for the first century. Because in the first century, women weren't learners. The men were to learn. That was a typical Jewish tradition. And he's already dismissed the Jewish tradition in the first chapter. And he's underscoring what God taught in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament, that women are to be learners. And I know sometimes, you know, people tell me, you know, I, I went to church forever and I never got anything out of it. And they come to a church like this and they say, yeah, I'm learning the Bible for the first time. Well, that's what's supposed to happen. When he says women are to learn, there's an assumption that the Bible is being taught. But you see, we've thrown that away. We've jettisoned that for 20-minute sermons. You give some guy, he'll spend two hours at a football game, but an hour and 10 minutes for a sermon, oh, I don't know if I can do that. He's a wimp. He's a wimp leading his family in a wimpy way. What we are doing right now is worship. It's not just what we sing. Occasionally, visitors say, well, you know, I, I like to worship, but I, you know, the, the sermons, you know, I don't know. I, I, I'm used to a much shorter sermon. This is worship. We're worshiping God in spirit and in truth. 
And one of the reasons we've got these aberrant hymns done by Hillsong and, and other groups like that, Bethel, you know, two groups that, yes, they produce some good songs, but Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. But they're also teaching all kinds of error behind that song, and they're modeling lifestyles amongst their worship pastors and their senior pastors, immorality. Look at the fall that has happened in those organizations. Why don't we sing those songs? I don't want to endorse those organizations. Neither does Matt. Every time we play some song, part of our license fee goes to those people. I don't want to underwrite their ministry with your hard-earned tithe dollars to propagate evil. But because people today are so untaught in the church, they can't even see the air of these hymns because they are theologically ignorant. Look, the church gathered together to learn the apostles' doctrine. And so women are to learn. It's an essential part of what they do, as we'll see next time, because of what God has called them to do and the high and holy calling he's put upon women. Now remember, we laid three foundational principles in trying to answer the role that men and women play. First, we said our appeal must be to Scripture because that's our only authority. Secondly, we said we must appeal to the whole of Scripture and not take something out of context. And when you appeal to the whole of Scripture, starting in Genesis all the way through Revelation, you see that men and women are equal. In spite of the Jewish tradition that women should not learn, and again, he's already underscored one of their false traditions in chapter 1, because there were Jews and Gentiles in the church alike, and some carried tradition into the church rather than the truth of Scripture. He wants them to jettison unbiblical traditions. The Old Testament elevated women to a place of equality and to an equal status before the Lord. Think about your, think your way through this. In Exodus chapters 19 and 20, God gave the Ten Commandments too, to men and women alike. And God promised both groups that if they would obey His commands, they would see the blessing of God on their life. And He promised to both groups that if they disobeyed their commands, they would be disciplined. And the Torah, God valued the life of a man equally with the life of a woman, and that if uh, someone hurt someone else, the sentence was the same, whether the person who was hurt was a man or a woman. In Exodus 12, God ordained the Passover to be celebrated by who? Men and women alike. In Deuteronomy, when God gives the Shema, love God with your whole heart, mind, and soul, it was given to who? Both men and women. And so throughout the Old Testament, fathers and mothers alike are to teach their children because there's an assumption that fathers and mothers alike are to learn the scriptures so they in turn can communicate the scriptures. But while they are equally blessed of the Lord, clearly they don't play the same roles. And as you read the Old Testament, that becomes very clear. And again, because we are rejecting that God created us male and female differently, we are embracing these evils. For our president, I mean, for our president to stand up and affirm transgenderism, for our vice president to stand up and affirm that this is evil beyond evil. Look, you can cut them up, you can dress them up, you can put makeup on them, you can drug them up, but a man in the end is still a man and a woman is still a woman. We, we had someone waiting on us in Greenville and Grant, my son, said, 
Is that a man or a woman? I don't know. Uh, the long fingernails. But this voice, the man of a voice. The somewhat of a figure, though it looked like a mastectomy might have happened, of a woman. And my heart went out to him, and Grant said, we just need to pray for him, don't we? I said, yeah, we do, man. We need to pray for him because he's lost. But as you read Scripture, God makes distinctions in the Old Testament between men and women. Think your way through this. As you read through the kings that served in the southern kingdom, of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel, or when they were united, there was not a single female king, not one. I think that's significant. Think about the priests in the Old Testament. There was not a single female priest, not one. Uh, Think about those who wrote the Old Testament. Certainly, there are two books, Esther and Ruth, that bear a female's name, but every single book of the Old Testament was written by a man, none by a woman, not one. Think about women in Scripture in the Old Testament who maybe were even given the right to prophesy. Not a one had an ongoing prophetic ministry. And I'm going to raise these five women who are called prophetesses because people will quickly turn to them to say that this is the biblical justification, even in the Old Testament, for a woman becoming a pastor today. The first prophetess that's mentioned on this slide is Miriam, and she is found in Exodus 15 and verse 21. And uh, we're told that uh, she gathered all the women of Israel together to get their timbrels and to sing a great hymn over God's sovereign defeat of Pharaoh as he drowned the army in the sea. Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with with timbrels and with dancing. Miriam answered them, meaning the women, sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. So Miriam is the very first woman in Scripture to be called a prophetess. Remember, Moses is 80 years of age at this time. Aaron was 83 years of age. And of course, based on the time of the Exodus, that puts Miriam, who, remember, protected Moses as a little baby. She's somewhere in her 90s. So she, with the other women, danced and played their tambourines in great joy filling their hearts over the defeat of Pharaoh and God's sovereignty over him. God chose for one moment, on one occasion, to speak through this woman known as Miriam, and she's called a prophetess. Now stay with me, because we're going to think our way through that in light of New Testament truth. The second person to be called a prophetess in Scripture is Deborah. And she is a unique instrument of God found in the Judges. And in Judges 4, she's called a prophetess because she was given direct revelation. And she took this direct revelation and she shared it with Barak. Let me read Judges 4, starting in verse 6. Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, go and march to Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. And by the way, this event goes down as one of the top 10 military battles found in all of Scripture, probably in all of human history. 
Yeah, he's got 10,000 Israeli soldiers on his side, but that's small compared to the army of Sisera. Israel has zero tanks, zero chariots. Sisera has 900. Pharaoh only had 600. And so in Sisera's mind, like, man, this is a, this is a pushover. We've got 900 of our tanks. We've got an army 10 times the size of theirs. We're going to crush them. And so Deborah is given direct revelation from the Lord to speak to one man called Barak. Verse 7, I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and with his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. So on this one occasion, she's given a direct revelation to God, to Barak, concerning this battle, and he in faith, this man who alone receives this word, goes and he sees a great victory. It's pretty amazing. Now, some will take this, say this is the biblical justification for a woman pastor. It is no more the biblical justification for a woman pastor than when in 1 Corinthians 11, a woman prays and prophesies in church. Remember, for the first nearly decade, there was not the first book of the New Testament that had been written. So when the church gathered on the Lord's Day, what did they study? The Old Testament. It's all about Jesus anyway. That's all they had. They studied the Old Testament. And so the New Testament began to be written. But until it was written, they needed some instruction. And so what did God do? In the church, he spoke directly to men directly to woman. They stood up and they prophesied in the church. The spirits of prophets were to be subject to one another. You were to test the spirits to see whether they are of God. And today it would be comparable to a woman standing up in church and reading the Bible. They were speaking direct revelation. But when the canon of scripture was completed, that gift in terms of direct revelation stopped. And so here is a woman who is a direct conduit of God, and the Lord God said through Deborah, Barak, this is what you need to do. And what does he do? Deborah doesn't lead the army out. Barak does. And who's given the credit for the response of faith? Not Deborah, but Barak, because in the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews 11, his faith is underscored, Hebrews eleven thirty two. The third woman to be called a prophetess, as this slide shows, is Huldah. Huldah, you can read of her in 2 Kings 22 or in 2 Chronicles 34. She's called a prophetess because like Deborah, on one occasion, she is given a direct revelation and she speaks to a guy named Hilkiah who's a priest. And on one occasion, to one person, God spoke through her, and she's called a prophetess. There is another person who's called a prophetess, and her name is Noadiah. Noadiah, you can read about her in Nehemiah 6.14. And if you heard my series in Nehemiah, then you already know, if you haven't studied it yourself, she was a false prophet. So we can quickly discount her. Fifth and finally, the next one who's named as a prophet is Isaiah's wife. And you can read about her in Isaiah 8.3. She's called a prophetess because she gives birth to a baby boy and God directly tells her what she is to name that little boy. And his name had great prophetic meaning. And so from the illustration found in Isaiah, not to mention these other texts, 
Obviously, the idea of a prophetess is different from what some people think of today. Five ladies mentioned as prophetesses. Isaiah's wife, who gives birth and gives a name that's prophetic in meaning. Uh, One who's a false prophet. Three, Miriam, Deborah, and Huldah, who on one occasion, each time speaks a direct word from God to an individual. Now, as you come into the New Testament, again, people will use Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And again, he's affirming our oneness in Christ, not our sameness. That we come to the Lord in the same way by faith alone, in Christ alone, and we are equally blessed of God, but that does not mean that males act like females or that females act like males, we retain our distinct roles. So as you come into the New Testament, what's interesting is that there's not a single woman pastor listed anywhere in the New Testament. Not one. In the New Testament, there's not a single apostle who's a female. Not one. There are no elders, there are no evangelists in the New Testament who are female. Not one. There are a number of recorded sermons in the New Testament, but not a single recorded sermon by a woman. Not one. There's 27 additional books in the New Testament, but of the 66 books written of the Bible, not a single book is written by a woman. Not one. Ah, but people will say, well, what about Acts 21.9, where he speaks of the four daughters of Philip. Let me read Acts 21.9. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who are called prophetesses. Now, it's actually a participle, but it's not wrong in English to translate a participle like a noun for it to smooth out. But the King James and the ESV actually do it a little more literally, and I prefer it. It says in the King James, and the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. The ESV and the Net Bible also pick up on the participle, this verbal. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So it's a verb. it's It's a participle in English. It indicates action. And the scripture teaches that at some time in some place, we're not told how, if they did it all together in unison or separately, these four daughters of Philip did prophesy. And I'm sure it was probably unique, much like with Miriam or much like Deborah or much like Mary, the mother of the Lord. Remember, she gave a direct word of prophecy when it's revealed to her that she is going to carry in her womb the Messiah. Elizabeth, she's given a direct word of prophecy on the same occasion. And again, we studied last time from 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 5 that when a woman prayed or prophesied in church, she was to do it with her head covered because it was a recognition of her headship to her husband. But she could pray. She could prophesy. And again, I think the parallel today would be like a woman reading Scripture. But wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is the answer to Rick Warren and those who would dispute me this morning. They'll say, what about Acts 2.17? So let me read Acts 2.17. If you remember the occasion, Peter on Pentecost standing up and preaching to thousands and thousands of Jewish men and women 3,000 are saved, 
which is amazing because this is Pentecost, the same day that the law was given where 3,000 died. But he preaches on Pentecost, 3,000 are saved. These 120 pour out of the upper room. There's a supernatural expression that we studied last month as to what happened on that day. And they spoke these previously unlearned languages. And some of the skeptics said, oh, they're a bunch of drunks. Peter says, it's 9 a.m. in the morning. No one gets drunk at 9 a.m. And then he said, and it shall be, and he quotes the prophet Joel, in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. And they'll say, well, this is why we didn't see all these women prophets and preachers for 1,900 years, because we weren't in the last days. But now we're in the last days, and that's why we have all these women preachers and prophets. But again, if you were with me in my series on eschatology, we saw that the term last days began when Christ walked on the earth. This is what God said of God the Son, Hebrews 2, in the last days. Peter witnesses this miracle and he tells the people, this is what God said would happen in the last days. Peter is acknowledging they are in the last days. And that is true because the Bible has taught that from the inception of the church, Christ's return is imminent. He could come at any moment. Nothing prophetically needs to happen for the rapture to take place. Now, I believe we're in the last of the last days and in latter times as it relates to the second coming, which the rapture that happens before it is that much closer as you see prophecy for the second coming. But listen, this is not something that just is unique to the end of time here. That is a gross distortion of Scripture. All right, I'm almost done. So think your way through this. We've got the four daughters of Philip that somehow prophesied, much like the women in Corinth and 1 Corinthians 11. Think about how Christ esteemed woman. Who is the first person he ever revealed his messiahship to? A very godless woman. She had been married five times, and the guy she was shacking up with, Jesus said, is not even your husband. And she's the first woman, the first person that God reveals his Messiahship to. In Mark 5, Jesus heals men and women. In Luke 10, he teaches men and he teaches women. And after the resurrection, who is the very first one he appeared to in his resurrection body? A woman, Mary of Magdala, or we call her Mary Magdalene. The very first one was a woman. In Romans 16, when Paul closes off his epistle, he goes through this list of great women who is used mightily of God. And so the scripture in no way, Old or New Testament, dismisses the importance of women. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. She is to learn And of course, it's essential that she learns to be able to properly teach other women, to be able to properly teach other children. We'll see why that's important next time. Third and finally, a woman who is submissive learns quietly. Not only does she learn, she learns quietly. Let me put verses 11 and 12 together for a moment. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. So Paul spells out two truths here. Women are to be silent and women are to be subject. Now the word quiet or silent in other translations is a 
word that just means that, quiet or silent. And if you're interrupting a church sermon and, and trying to think that you should be the teacher, you can't possibly learn. And then the word for submissiveness is the Greek word hupotasso. It's used of, a, uh, of someone who submits under a military commander. It's used of someone who submits to the gospel. When Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his, flaming, uh, with his angels in flaming fire, he'll deal out retribution to those who don't know the Lord, to those who do not listen under, hupotasso, obey, submit to the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And so a woman, if she's having this argument in her heart, and maybe someone listening to me today is, and they're having this argument in their heart over God's plan for them, they're not going to be able to learn. Now, again, somebody will say, well, this is culturally mandated to the first century. It's not, and you do not want to miss next week, and I'll show you how, but let me just briefly read verse 12. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. There it is again a second time, quiet. Now, he's obviously prohibiting something. So what is he prohibiting? You need to come back for that next week. Now, let me just say, I don't, I'm not going to go through the three applications. We'll use that for another week. We ran out of time in the first service. And, but let me say a couple things in closing. Why don't people want to submit? I'm not just talking about women. I'm just talking about men. Look, we're all called to submit in some way, shape, or fashion. We submit to one another in the Lord. Obey your leaders. Submit to them on and on. Submit to governing authorities. We're all called to submit. Why do people not want to submit today? Number one, because we're rebels on the inside. We have a fallen nature that when we sinned in and with Adam, we were born with. And by nature, it's rebellious. And number two, just as Satan did in the Garden of Eden, he is convincing you that if you submit to God, you will miss God's best. That you will be somehow ripped off. That God is somehow holding off to you. But do you remember that Roman centurion, that Gentile in, in Luke chapter 7? He had a servant who was deathly ill. He was near death. And he knew his only hope was for this one named Yeshua, Jesus, to come and heal him. And of course, as Christ traveled to his home, he sent word through another servant. And the servant quoted the centurion, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too, he said, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to the slave, do this, and does this. And he does it. He's saying, look, Jesus, I'm just like you. I too, like you, am under authority. And you have authority because you're under authority. And I have authority because I'm under authority. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Jesus affirmed that this centurion, this Gentile, 
had more knowledge about how the kingdom of God worked than some of his Jewish compatriots. But suppose the centurion slapped the general. What kind of authority would he have then? He'd be in the brig if he lived long enough to survive. No, he had authority because he was under authority. Now, the devil will try to convince us not to submit. And you should submit only in the Lord because if someone asks you to do something that's contrary to Scripture in what you know to be true, in what God's written word has said, you shouldn't submit. But assuming it is consistent with Scripture, the devil will convince you just as he did our first parents He tried to offer them authority without submission, and they lost both their freedom and their authority over the creation. And a person is never more like the devil than when he is rebellious. That's what made the devil the devil. That's what made Lucifer a holy, magnificent, unfallen angel. The devil, the slanderer, the adversary that he is. You are never more like Christ than when you submit to him. You are never more like the devil when you refuse to submit to the authority of Scripture. So don't write me off. Search the Scriptures. You're thinking people. If you want what the world has, just do what they're doing. You'll get it. You'll have crazy, mixed-up kids who are rebels, and you will not see the blessing of God on your life. But if you want what God offers you, for every good and perfect gift comes from above, then do what he says. And if you've never submitted to the Lordship of Christ, there's no better time than today. Now, our Father, we thank you for your word, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We thank you that your word works that it is proven to be true by everyone who practices it. For you said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And so I pray today that you would be at work in our midst. I thank you for the women of Community Bible Church. Father, I've never been a part of a church ever where you have so mightily used the women to influence other women to teach our children, and we have better wives and better children because of it. And so we pray and ask that as we study this in the final paragraph, that you would continue to speak to us, that we might know and practice your best. I pray today for someone, because they do not have a regenerate mind, they are in argument with what the apostle has written here. Help them in simple childlike faith to call upon Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin and for new life. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We'll sing a hymn of invitation. And if you have a decision to make to confess Jesus openly as Lord, you might be in Graniteville, you might be in Grace. To be baptized is a symbol of your faith as we did in the last service. Or maybe to join this church, then I want to invite you to leave your seat And meet me here in the front. Matt's going to lead us. If you have a decision, step out now. Matt, come.